Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Alida Naylor and welcome to New Books, Book, Books Network. Um, today I am here with Dr. Pavla Shimkova and I am very happy to be discussing her wonderful book, Urban Archipelago, the, An Environmental History of the Boston Harbour Islands. Pavla Shimkova is a historian with an interest in East Central European and American environmental history, currently at the Rachel Carson Centre for Environment and Society at LMU Munich. She is currently a postdoctoral researcher for the project Corridor Talk, Conservation Humanities in the Future of Europe's National Park. For this, she focuses on the transnational environmental history of the Bavarian Forest and Schumacher. Pavla studied American cultural history, English literature and political science at Masaryk in Brno, and at LMU Munich, where she received her doctorate in 2019. So her book, an Environmental History of the Boston Harbour Islands is an articulate and engaging overview of the more recent history of the islands off Boston's coast, explaining the relationship between humans and the environment, how they have influenced one another as changing eras pose different immediate issues, whether that be the changing nature of industry, epidemics and disease, war or utopian visions of the future. So thank you for being here, Babla. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And for this very generous introduction. (laughs) (laughs) I was very interested in your background, actually, because you cover both Eastern European and environmental history, so and American history. So first, could you maybe talk about your trajectory a little and how you have moved between your different fields of study, Eastern, Central Europe, American, which seem quite diverse in nature, and maybe tell us how your study of one region has perhaps informed your research on another? Oh, uh... Well, so, so perhaps just to start a little about my background, so I'm Czech originally. I've lived in Germany for the past 12 years, and I've worked on the U.S. history for my MA and also for my doctorate. Uh, so I'm, 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 not, I'm not sure that I'm doing a, job, a good job moving between, uh, between these these. Uh, diverse fields of study, but 
maybe you've identified some commonalities between them. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to reflect on uh, how, it, how it all combines because uh, when I'm doing research on the US, uh, then being an outsider, uh, I've realized has, has both advantages and disadvantages because uh, it gives me the mm, advantage of, of uh, seeing things from the outside and maybe seeing the big picture. Uh, but also I do miss the lived experience, if you will. So because I've never lived in the US, I'm, I'm, uh, so I'm only visiting and only just seeing glimpses of, of uh, what it's like to, to live in the US. Uh, and with Central Europe, it's the exact opposite for me. Uh, and also there's, there's colleagues that uh, actually can combine these these two worlds uh, quite, quite well. Uh, and so f- just to give an example, uh, the American historian Eagle Glasheim uh, who's, who's specializing in uh, Czechoslovak history and he's written this wonderful book on, on uh, Czechoslovak borderlands, uh, makes a comparison uh, with where, where he comes from, uh, Grand Forks, North Dakota. And uh, it's really surprising how well this comparison works <laughs> because he talks about uh, nostalgia, about the sense of loss, uh, and about connection to place, and I think these 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 uh, hmm, comparisons that seem this disparate uh, at first can can actually be a source of uh, uh, surprising universality and, and relevance. So, do you see it as sort of a sister kind of a sister project almost? <laughs> <laughs> that would be wonderful if I could do that because <laughs> so far I haven't been able to uh, find a way of uh, of actually com- combining both these interests. But perhaps I do tend to focus more on on because of my background uh, on global ties and global perspectives than someone who's focusing in just one region. <laughs> but uh, yeah. I might definitely try to, to bring together the best of the two worlds, but uh, I I've, haven't really had a project so far that would, that would really combine them in a, uh, in, in, in a sort of specific way. So it's, it's, if at all, then it may be more about, about the general approach than, than specific projects. I suppose the Harbour Islands themselves are quite peripheral and they link in in that way. Yeah, uh, of course it depends on the era, but uh, in, in most of Boston's history, uh, the Harbour Islands would, would be really perceived as, as uh, basically a fringe of uh, not, not only of the city, but also the, the edge of the continent in a sense. Yeah, and th- throughout the book you have these sort of divisions, embodied urban fringe, transition worlds apart so how did you kind of decide on these categorizations for the islands i wouldn't say i decided on them they sort of jumped out at me from 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 the sources really because and also these these are these are uh, these are expressions that i also that i'm also trying to problematize a bit in my book because these worlds apart uh, that's that's part of uh, how the how the national park area 
the Boston Harbor Islands National Park that, that is today uh, advertises the islands uh, as, as places that are so close to Boston but are completely different. And what I'm trying to say in my book is that uh, this is actually more complicated than it, than, than it looks. Uh, the islands are indeed very close to Boston, but uh, they've never been in their uses and in their actual material existence. They, they have never been worlds apart. They've always been in one way or another uh, a part of Boston. Yeah, I mean, you kind of got me thinking, like, throughout the book about other areas that are kind of composed of islands, such as, like, Hawaii being so far from the US mainland, or, like, other countries that are composed, like, solely of archipelagos, like Indonesia, and you kind of explore the Harbour Islands' integration with the city of Boston. And, yeah, and how, like, some islands are too far from the mainland to really be integrated into its fabric. So, I guess... In what ways would you say the Boston Harbour Islands are unique in terms of their relationship with a bigger whole, taking into account these other regions that exist? Well, uh, I would say that uh, they're unique in the way that, uh, in, in their really, it's 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 a geographical position that does it. I think because uh, the islands being so close to a large population centre like Boston. And of course, part of what I'm trying to say is uh, that uh, they're not so unique uh, after all, because if, if you look at other coastal cities like New York, Baltimore, for instance, uh, then, then sort of a pattern emerges that uh, there might be really whole category of places these 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 uh, coastal islands close to close to large cities that are used in very similar ways and they have a similar relationship to the to the, to the mother city <laughs> so to say uh, you bring up uh, Roosevelt Island so, so in the book if, if you, if, I'm sorry you bring up Roosevelt Island I think later in the book as yeah. an example of that yeah and um, so um, in relation to other islands, uh, I mean, in a way, every place is specific. Every place is unique. So, but uh, I think they're unique as a category. But uh, the Boston Harbor Islands, as such, uh, are part of a of a. Uh, <laughs> A category of places that you can find mm, all along the, the mm, North American coast, and indeed, if you would mm, would want to widen the perspective, then I'm sure uh, you would find examples all over the world. So, so that's 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 what I'm actually trying to say, trying to do, like a first foray, so to say, uh, into 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 analyzing what what these urban islands in fact are that definitely came across just how unique they are um like something that yeah part like what i found especially interesting i guess was the kind of geographical location of boston itself and you mentioned that it's kind of 
bridging the gap between the fisheries of the north and the agriculture of the south. And so the kind of natural environment and natural resources kind of ultimately ended up shaping the urban environment. I suppose that was a takeaway I had anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, this, this, this is the... Uh... This is actually the basic idea of, of urban environmental history, that uh, to understand how a city functions, we need to f- look at uh, the natural environment. Uh, we, look, we need to look at the natural resources. We need to look at the hinterlands. And this is what uh, uh, William Crone's classic Nature's Metropolis does for Chicago. Uh, that. Uh, he basically looks how this one city shapes like large areas in its hinterlands and how it actually transforms large parts of, of the of the Midwest into its hinterland. Um, with Boston, it's uh, yeah, its dependence on its natural environment is sort of in your face, really, because. Uh, mm, the natural environment is the reason why Boston is where it is, because it's uh, and why it, why it why it why it grows and why it develops so quickly because uh, uh, the location is well suited for port because it has a good harbor it has a deep water channel, uh, and also the natural environment is is the source of Boston's problems because uh, <laughs> it's uh, it's very well suited for a port, but less well suited for a city. <laughs> is the, I mean, if you look at Boston today, uh, it's, uh, it's sort of, uh, yeah, it's uh, the, the, the mm, perception deceives a bit because the uh, Boston that is now is much larger than the original peninsula on which Boston was built. I mean, I mean, I think more than more than a half of the, of the city that is today stands on 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 made land on landfill. So the original peninsula is very small, and uh, so Boston needs to make land to to make more space for itself, uh, and also it's surrounded by mud, mud flats by by tidal flats, and. Uh, so the water is very shallow, and as the city starts to grow, it uh, has a massive sewage problem because the sewage won't go away. It stays on the tidal flats, and you can imagine the rest. <laughs> so yes, this this is uh, this is a very good point that uh, I mean, all cities are shaped by by the natural environment, but with Boston, it's especially conspicuous. And well, another thing kind of in the same vein that I thought you did very well was how you conveyed the idea of the islands kind of shrinking and growing over time in various ways. And they kind of took on a life of their own, even as they were impacted by human influence. So there was one that slid right into the main shipping channel. You said, well, others such as Spectacle Island kind of completely changed their shape over time as they were being used as like a dumping ground, essentially, as you said. And do you see them as like, I don't know, separate entities with a with this life of their own, or are they kind of ultimately subject to man's activities? 
that's that's a terrific question, actually. It's a little overcomplicated. So sorry. I've I've been thinking about a lot since since actually since the book's been published because of course once the book's out, uh, you keep thinking. You always start finding new problems. (laughs) Yeah. How else would yeah? How different I would have done it if I if I would do it once more. Um, I was I was also thinking like who are my main characters in in this book, and I actually came to the conclusion that it's the islands themselves, in a way. Well, although, I understood although, it that way too. <laughs> although they're they're essentially been acted upon because, I mean, some environmental historians would say that. Uh, hmm. Not only people have agency, but also uh, animals, plants, uh, even even in an inanimate objects like mountains or, or, or rivers. I, I was going probably, to say I, the sea. <laughs> I probably wouldn't extend agency so far as to say the the the, the islands have a will of their own, but. Uh, they like they, their their materiality definitely influences the way people people interact with them or react to them, shape them, live on them, and also like islands in general invite this 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 kind of thinking about them as, as entities, as, as separate bodies because they're they they have these limits, they're bounded, uh, um, because of these 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 clear boundaries that they have it's uh, it's sort of tempting to think about them as uh, as entities with a biography um so if i had one more try with my book i might actually accentuate that more <laughs> but yeah i suppose i don't know i didn't really think about that when i was like trying to decide which questions to ask you and the idea that maybe we do kind of atomize them and like ascribe identities to pieces of land that are kind of much smaller than one might do to like and, and of course it's, it's it's no it's really interesting because it's also the way people relate to them like as, as if there were living bodies and it's different people you talk to and, and who are f- involved in boston harbor in different ways will tell you what their favorite islands are and how they have different characteristics and, and uh, almost like people, the way That's they will talk about them. So, so it's this is a really good question, and uh, I wish Wait, I, I had explored it more. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dying to know now, though, which one is your favorite island and why? <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm trying not to have favorites. <laughs> 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 no, but. Uh, Actually, um, well, in the book, I write the most about Spectacle Island, which probably has uh, the most dramatic trajectory of them all, because it's this place which starts out as as this really mid-sized island of, I think, 42 acres. And uh, gradually grows... uh, because it has 
all kinds of things dumped dumped on it, including trash and earth dug out from 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 under Boston during a during a tunnel project. So it grows to I think one hundred and five acres that is today. And and you have, you have exactly you have this, this this really crazy history of uh, of a place that first is, is is just pasture land and has farms on it, and uh, after that it it becomes uh, basically an industrial landscape with with factories uh, <clears> that process uh, Boston's Boston's trash basically, and then then this landfill. And at the end of, of 20th century, it uh, gets uh, capped and landscaped and transformed into this uh, this urban park, and and part of part of a national park, which is really interesting. But I in the book you call it a rags to riches story at the end, which I quite liked. <laughs> do I do that? Oh. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> Or at least that's the impression I, I got. I, Maybe I, I'm just remembering. <laughs> I think, yeah. I mean, that's 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 the usual way of of, uh, of framing the story, but uh, yeah, it's true. I, you could I have actually I, just. I, been... I think I would actually disagree with with with, with the shorthand because uh, what I'm trying to show is not that uh, this is some kind of triumphalist narrative from landfill to 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 a lovely park. That yeah. uh, what I'm trying to show is that both these uses uh, go back to what Bostonians want to do with this island and to the way they perceive it. So, uh, in this sense, the island's completely subject to 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 Boston's needs and perceptions. So, in this sense, there's uh, not so much difference between a park and a landfill. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry. I, th- I think thinking back, like maybe you were critiquing it and just quoting what's in- <laughs> what the popular perception was. So I apologize. But, but to go back to the f- favorite island question, actually, the island I most liked to to write about was was another one, and that's that's Gallops Island. Um, uh, Gallops Island is. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't write so much about it in the book as, as it would have deserved because it's it's, it's a really fascinating story because uh, this is an island I haven't been on and no one who's come to Boston after two thousand has been on this island because uh, uh, it's 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 been off limits uh, since two thousand because there's uh, there's been mm, there's asbestos debris found on the island, so it's, it was it was closed off completely. And uh, what was that from? Like, what was that? Uh, it, there used to be quarantine, and then there was uh, some military structures uh, during World War Two, and presumably the asbestos comes from those. And um, but in the seventies, this was this was an island that, uh, uh, like. I've talked to quite a lot of people who said this was their absolute favorite island because it was so green and so quiet, and uh, it's also almost on the on the edge of, of the harbor, like uh, 
in one of the easternmost islands. Uh, so you had the sense of uh, having the city behind you and and the Atlantic Ocean in front of you. And uh, so this this is this is the way they described it. And uh, but there's 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 also these these like this this really ir- ironic development because uh, this island was until the 1920s it was it was uh, the quarantine for incoming ships also for people uh, in Boston with infectious di- diseases they would be ferried over to the island and so this was a place that anyone could visit that no one would have wanted to really. And whereas today, it's a place that uh, everyone wants to go to, but no one can. So it's 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 this it's this it's this really fun story of of, of modernity tripping over itself. <laughs> and the sad irony of it. Um, yeah, I mean, you mentioned the military structures, and I guess also in the book you mentioned the shelter of the harbor. So, what role have the islands played in protecting the area over the years? You know, you have like you have the shelter they afford at the beginning and then like we see the fortifications start to emerge over the next few centuries or especially in the middle of the 20th century uh, you said it was uh was it was it uh, the middle of the 20th century yes the, yeah. yeah it's yeah basically un- until the so have they always been seen un- as something as a, II, yeah of course have they, have they always been seen as something of a, a source of protection or shelter yeah i mean this was one of the roles they had, because uh, of course, at the beginning uh, of, 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 of the story I'm telling, uh, they're sheltering the harbour waters uh, for shipping, because they act as, as windbreaks, and this is especially important uh, in a time of, of, of small small vessels, so say the 17th, 18th century. Uh, also, for most of the time that Boston exists, uh, there are fortification on, on some of the islands. Uh, um, this this really takes off in the second half of the 19th century, when uh, I would say about a half of, of, of the islands, there's 34 of them in all. And I would say be- between one third and one half of them Mm-hmm. have actually military structures on them. Um, which also means that the military is, is the uh, largest landowner in, in, the <laughs> in, in the harbour. And and as we find out in the book, it did not know that it was a landowner for a while. <laughs> well, that was the city. <laughs> the city, sorry, yeah. But yeah, 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 you, you have this confusion, like who owns what. Uh, that's, that's, that's also an interesting story, but... Uh, yeah, and so so there, yeah, the shelter in this sense, like because of the fortifications and uh, also for 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 the shipping purposes, but also mm, in a more let's say ominous sense because they're used to, or more ominous and indirect sense they're used as a protection against any kind of danger that comes from the outside. And that includes the diseases too, or or the perceived social diseases. Like, uh, 
number of the islands have quarantines on them one after another. Uh, and they also serve as, as uh, basically places of internment for, for immigrants who are seen as people who are potentially carrying diseases. Yeah. So in our, also in this sense, they're, they're sort of vanguards of the city, really. Um, yeah. Like, seen I... as such, because, like... The, this this is this is the role of like the islands being part of the city and not being part of the city at the same time. That uh, yes, yeah, exactly as you say that uh, Bostonians uh, perceive them as something that uh, can shelter their city from anything that comes from the outside. Um. There are two directions I kind of want to go in now because I'm interested mm-hmm. in both the idea of property ownership on the islands, but also public health and sanitation. Uh, well, the, um, <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I can't unfortunately answer the, the property uh, question because, like, uh, was it the like the, the one about Samuel Bill? Yeah, just how they kind of how they came to be how they fell under the ownership of certain individuals, but you're an environmental historian, yeah, so I probably I, shouldn't ask I mean, that. I, no, I, I should know, but I'm not an early modern historian, and yeah. I, I'd probably be talking nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> like, okay, I'll move on to public health and sanitation then. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I, something that kind of jumped out at me, because I'm British and I remember studying the cholera epidemic in the UK when I was an undergraduate, and I remember how that how the cholera epidemic in uh, I think it was in eighteen in the 18, early eighteen fifties um, it contributed heavily to the development of germ theory at least in the UK and so I was wondering how kind of public health crisis in Boston sanitation issues in the city and I guess a more global cholera problem kind of contributed to broader understandings of the body and disease. I'm not sure if I can talk to, about the broader understandings because I was, I was really focusing on these islands. Uh, but uh, the way the islands are used is very closely tied to, uh, to the medical theory of the, of the day. And um, uh, that is, in this case, of the 18... Uh, 50s, 1860s, uh, not the germ theory, uh, but of course the miasma theory. Yeah. That, uh, um, so that was the idea that, um, I guess, um, uh, this that is, this disease is, was spread by a smell. Yeah, exactly. This, yeah, that's, uh, yeah, f- places with f- yeah, bad ventilation and foul smells are, are the hotbeds of disease. And, and this is also why so many of, of the of the so-called nuisances, the businesses that, that produce this kind of bad smell uh, are pushed out of the city and in Boston's case uh, in, in, in many cases onto onto the harbor islands. So, uh, I could talk about the smell map a little because I was actually going to ask if like there was a smell map of Boston. <laughs> So I know there was one of New York that I saw on like Bloomberg is, or something. Is there one of New York? Yes, really? Yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen that one, but I, I, I'd be really interested to see because because there is one for Boston. Oh, great. Tell me everything. <laughs> <laughs> so I think 
I'm not sure if I got the year right, but I think it was 1878. Uh, this was a time when, uh, yet again, Boston was hit in the summer by, by uh, a f- horrible smell season. <laughs> that that's, uh, citizens were complaining to the Board of Health uh, about smells emanating from... Hmm, Tallow works and, and meat processing factories, and uh, and also uh, there's also the problem of the of, of the sewage, which uh, we've already mentioned. And uh, so what what Board of Health does is that it produces this really incredible map. It's uh, basically like the, the 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 city proper, and. All, all along the f- uh, the shore or the coast of Boston are, are these red dots and, and in some cases also like really large red patches and they signify the, uh, the hot spots of the bad smell and of course this uh, this is an attempt to uh, like produce a map of the chief offenders is to uh, describe and contain the problem which is of course futile even in the even in the sense that smells are really difficult to grasp and really difficult to pin down and so 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 it's it's really such an interesting document like because it it stands for for the city like for the sanitary city's efforts to to control these things and at the same time something so intangible <laughs> exactly something so intangible and something so uncontrollable really <laughs> yeah um forgive me my forgetfulness but did you did you get permission to post it in the book because i don't remember seeing it i'm sorry did you get, did you have permission to post it in the book? Because I don't remember seeing it, but that could just be my poor memory. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's in there. Yeah. Oh, really? Which page? Let's take a look. Uh, now. I'm, so, I'm so sorry. I must have missed yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, just um, uh, page fifty-three. Oh, excellent! Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's 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 uh, unfortunately it's black and white, and uh, the original one. Like the the dark areas are really like crimson red, is <laughs> is of course much better. But <laughs> oh yeah, you can see here outlet of sewers, places of offensive truths. Could you see were there any specific kind of smells that they identified that you remember? Um, like maybe there was a note alongside the map that wasn't published. I think I mean yeah the. So the main problem was really the sewage. Uh-huh. Uh, that's that's also the majority of of of, uh, of the sources that that you see on the map, is, yeah, and the map's too small, but sort of the, the series of dots uh, lining the shore. That's that's all the sewage outlets. Oh yes, I see. And this is this is also part of part of the reason why uh, Boston gets a. Uh, Citywide, uh, citywide sewage system around this time, because before that you had scores of individual sewage outlets 
that all ended in the shoreline and, and created an incredible nuisance, of course. Another map that I found very interesting was the old sewage system. So you had the tunnels kind of each side of Boston. And I was wondering if they were mm-hmm. still in use today, if you knew. <laughs> well, I'm not really sure. I know that the southern branch isn't because uh, the sewage uh, the sewage plant is uh, is um, is not used anymore. Mm-hmm. But uh, I can actually imagine that the northern branch, which goes to Deer Island, uh, might might well be in use. But I'm I'm not really sure. That's okay. It's something to look up afterwards for fun. Um... Yeah, I mean, speaking about sewage and smells, um, another kind of theme that I identified was how the islands became sites of isolation. So spectacle for smallpox quarantine, as well as undesirable institutions. And that also kind of gave me ideas of, it it kind of evoked ideas with me about like contagion, physical and social, and the roots of the eugenics movement in the US, which started to develop towards the end of the 19th and early 20th centuries. And there was one quote I liked on page 73. Uh, the efforts to deodorize and conceal the nature of businesses that were happening on the island, that were there, I guess, yeah, uh, the businesses on the islands, they trickled down to the very level of languages. So even the word abattoir, you know, there was previously, you know, slaughterhouse. <laughs> uh, I, I just kind of felt that there was a kind of atomization occurring. And these, I don't know, did you kind of um, understand or see that this distancing and like, of things that were kind of perceived to be contagious in whatever social or like even. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Um, Miasma-based way. I don't know if I'm phrasing mm-hmm. this very well, but do, do you no, see no, that no, as kind yeah. of being related to the eugenics movement that later emerged? Uh, I'm not sure about the eugenics movement, but definitely like, these ideas of um, uh, that, uh, that it's possible to sort of compartmentalize the city. Mm. And that you to do create sort of a geographical separation between different uses, and that you also create a spatial hierarchy, and that you can isolate bad uses somewhere, preferably somewhere where immigrant communities live, in case of Boston. This is this is this is this is. I mean, you can see that quite clearly. There's in like mid nineteenth century, or actually even even earlier, uh, a lot of um, a lot of the nuisances and like or what is called nuisance, like offensive trades, uh, like I don't know oil producing businesses, teleworks, everything that basically gives out a bad smell and no one wants to live next to, uh, get pushed to South Boston, which at this time is an immigrant community. Um, uh, but then again, I mean, South Boston, a little later, also experiences uh, 
Yeah, it would be it would be exaggerating to call it gentrification, but uh, uh, it becomes it becomes uh, more of a middle class neighborhood, and and that's and, that, that and, was in the back of my mind throughout. And I was like, don't say gentrification, don't say gentrification. So I just kept seeing it as gentrification. Um, uh, and and. Uh, yeah, so then the population or the yeah uh, starts to complain uh, about all these businesses, and yeah. so what the city does is to push it out uh, to places that have no constituency and there's star violence. <laughs> so mm-hmm. they're really at this time the nineteenth century and also the early part of the 20th century, at the very bottom of, of the city's spatial hierarchy. Mm. I mean, you mentioned these uh, the immigrant communities. So where, what would it, where were these um, immigrant communities from, these first-generation migrants, I believe you call them? Oh, I mean, Boston is, is, is of course, famous as, as the Irish city. Yeah. <laughs> and so... The first wave of immigration uh, would be mostly the Irish immigrants. And then a little later, uh, you would have a lot of Italian immigrants. And a little later still, uh, then immigrants from, from Eastern Europe, uh, many of them Jewish. So yeah. that would be, the, be the... the and, what and, of was course, the... and of course, then in the 20th century, the situation is quite different. But uh, when we're talking about the 19th century, then these these are these are the main groups. Yeah. Um. You. Then, um. It was Boston, yeah, you, what, Boston what, what... As, as a major immigra- immigration port at this time, and this yeah. this is also responsible for the. Hmm, uh, yeah. I was about to say growing population of the city, but that, that doesn't begin to describe it. I mean, the oh, population skyrocketed, <laughs> really. I mean, the city had, at the beginning of 19th century, it had about 30,000 people, and at the end of the century, it had half a million. So, I was going to say, those you gave the figures 34,000 in 1810 to 500,000 in 1890. So can you explain how that impacted city infrastructure and the environment, and why did this rapid growth occur? It's incredible. <laughs> Where do I begin? I mean, yeah, of course the impact was tremendous. Uh, well, the first thing is that uh, the city becomes too large for the peninsula. And, mm, I mean, no amount of, of land making can... Mm, uh, it's, it's, it's enough. So uh, the city, this is the time where the city spills over uh, to the mainland, so to say. And uh, this is also the time when uh, the, the so-called streetcar suburbs, to, to, to quote Sam Bass Warner, uh, <clears throat> develop. Um, for the infrastructures, of course, um, I'm sorry that I'm, that I'm going back to the sewers, but... <laughs> No, they were very important. This, is, this, 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 this population concentration, of course, a major challenge in terms of uh, of the waste infrastructure and the waste collection. 
um, I mean, the, the, the main train system doesn't get built until the 1870s. And before that, basically, everyone builds their own sewer, <laughs> which results in... Which, which is okay for the small community that Boston was, but it's not okay for the large city that it's becoming. And so it's a combination of really deteriorating conditions in the city. And also the idea of, of the sanitary city is a reaction to this. Uh, this idea that the city needs to be rid of of nuisances, uh, inverted commas, of of waste, of dirt, of rubbish. And this is, again, where where, where the Harbour Islands come in as as a solution to many of the city's problems. And, of course, the Boston Harbour, because, uh, like, one finds this in, in, in... most most histories dealing with waste that's the preferred way of, of dealing with it is uh, to externalize it to, to push it somewhere else and most cities uh, that are coastal cities that are on on, on, on the sea coast or on the ocean coast uh, would of course take the most ready solution and, and dump it in, into the water, which is exactly what Boston does. And which also brings many problems with it because it doesn't work so <laughs> well in practice as it seems in theory. I really like the image you created of like the trash coming back to haunt Boston. So everything that was like tossed into the sea ultimately had to be dealt with. So towards the end of the book, I think we see... Um, fishermen encountering issues with the, like the toxicity of their catches as well so do you think that like over time Boston has kind of started to had to start to ex- been forced I guess to like accept and deal with the consequences of its development instead of just like tossing it aside uh, I would say to an extent yes uh, because if we jump forward in time uh, to the 1970s 1980s um, uh, the pollution of Boston Harbor really gets extreme because uh, I just have the feeling I'm, I'm, I'm only talking about sewage today. <laughs> I'll go down history as a sewage historian. Very worst uh, things to be. <laughs> that's, uh, yeah, apparently most of Boston's problems environmental problems seem to be connected to sewage is uh, this is a problem that Boston has has had for for all of 20th century that untreated or or just rudimentarily treated sewage gets dumped into the harbor and of course this problem accumulates over time uh, as more and more people live in Boston as the harbor water gets more and more polluted and uh, in the 1970s and 1980s, the problem is starts, starts to be really grave. And also, this is a time when uh, environmental issues uh, start to come up uh, in, in the national agenda. And, and Boston 
so so yes, Boston is, needs to face uh, <laughs> the the consequences of uh, of its actions of, of the past few centuries. And uh, I have to say, that the Boston Harbor cleanup uh, is one of the one of the few like, success stories that everyone will probably agree on in Boston. Is, Could you tell uh, us a bit more about the Boston Harbor cleanup? Yeah, the Boston Harbor cleanup uh, is uh, one of the, well, first of all, it's it's one of the largest public projects, uh, not, not only in the history of Boston, but uh, also in, in one of the largest ones in, in, in US history. And also, it's, uh, it's interesting because Oh, it's interesting for so many reasons. <laughs> uh, it's interesting because uh, it's probably the one success story that most people in Boston would agree on, especially those who remember what the harbor used to look like before and what it looks like now. And also, it's uh, it's actually a court-ordered cleanup uh, because the city or um, the... Metropolitan District Commission that's actually responsible uh, for for the sewage treatment plants and uh, therefore for most of of the harbor pollution uh, doesn't act on the problem for several decades. Uh, I mean, in already in the sixties, you have people saying uh, that the harbor pollution is an issue that needs to be dealt with, and the Metropolitan District Commission says. Uh, that uh, according to their data, uh, mm, yeah, marine life at the outfalls doesn't seem to be negatively affected, uh, which turns out to be to be completely wrong. Uh, but uh, so so there is there in the sort of inertia, uh, and so the Boston Harbor cleanup when it finally when it finally happens. Uh, it's a result of a lawsuit, and uh, it results... Which year was the lawsuit? I think it was 82, when it's... When it, when the f- I mean, it was a series of lawsuits, but I think the first one was in 82. It was in 1980s. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. So it, 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 it did take quite a long time, exactly. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Uh, and the result of, uh, of the harbour cleanup was... Uh, not only uh, it was both environmental and administrative because uh, not only Boston Harbor uh, is much cleaner now you can actually swim in Boston Harbor. <laughs> the yeah the water quality seems seems to be seems to be much better much better now and but also uh, the city mm, organized or the mm, uh, yeah so the Metropolitan District Commission is. Uh, not exactly a city agency. It's it's on the border between between city and state, but uh, uh, so it, it gets broken up, and it results in in, in a completely different organization uh, of uh, who manages what in the harbor, which basically lasts until today. Like the agencies that were created at this point are still around. Um, yeah, I've... but. Um, if I go back to your question about about the about the consequences, <laughs> uh, 
like if if, if Boston confronts what uh, uh, how it how it affects its environment, then in the case of, of the harbor cleanup, definitely because uh, the pollution is a direct cons- direct consequence of, of Boston's urban development. Uh, but on the other hand. Hmm, it's also important to note that uh, there's uh, to an urban development there's always environmental costs that uh, can't be alleviated, and all even today like the sewage treatment is much better, much more effective, uh, but uh, the treated sewage is uh, now being released instead of uh, into Boston Harbor. It's been released into Massachusetts Bay, so the principle remains the same. It's uh, in a way, it just means a longer pipe. So, would you recommend not swimming Massachusetts Bay? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it's been treated now. Yes, so I, I don't know maybe for different <laughs> reasons, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there are there are a few directions again to go in now. Um, you mentioned, I mean, going back to kind of <laughs> sewage again, and I was thinking about people having to kind of create their own systems and the tunnels that were built, and then, of course, these abattoirs. And I know that you're an environmental historian, so I'm really sorry about making this kind of social, but the humans involved in the processes, they were kind, they felt a little kind of invisible to me. And I was wondering, like, who the people were who were responsible for these unpleasant tasks like were they the first generation migrants and do you have any further details about their lives and also like the history of slavery and later like how, how does all of this fit in with like the kind of I suppose the construction of the constructions of these systems that were inefficiently dealing with waste no this this is a fair point and uh this is one of the things that uh, I wish uh I had uh, I had mm, stressed more in my book or 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 analyzed more because um, especially for this period uh, the sources I, I, I draw on are mostly mm, city or municipal sources and so they're very top down and that, that also means that they're usually silent on, on exactly this point like who are the people doing the actual work so from from the sources I had, this was very hard to reconstruct. My guess would be that it is indeed the, the immigrant workforce uh, who are actually actually implementing uh, the city's projects, but uh, I have to admit I don't really know. Um, and and it's, it's, it's really a fair point to make. And uh, again... If if I had a chance to to, to <laughs> if I had one more try with my book, uh, this would be something that, that I would uh, definitely look into more. Uh, oh, I'm sorry for asking. Uh, in, uh, in case of slavery, yeah. I'm talking a little about this in in I think in the first chapter because uh, this this plays this plays a large role in early modern Boston uh, because uh, initially uh, the wealth that Boston's built on uh, comes uh, in a large part from uh, 
not only trade with the Caribbean, but also from land possessions in the Caribbean uh, that Bostonians uh, that Bostonians have, and land possessions also mean that they 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 possess slaves in the Caribbean. So, uh, in in the very beginning, uh, there's also slave owners in Boston itself, like or and also I mean ah. Now I'm babbling. <laughs> uh, You're not babbling. You're doing great. But I can pause again if you'd like me to. No, no, no. It's okay. Uh, I'll make a note so we can take like a... I can cut it slightly mm-hmm. here too. Okay, so, mm-hmm. so, I mean, there are records from, from Boston's very early years in the, I think, 1640s. Uh, that's uh, on one of the islands, actually, <laughs> on another's island. Uh, mm, there lives a, a uh, what's his name? Samuel Maverick is his name, and uh, he owns uh, several slaves who live on the property, who actually live on this island in Boston. Uh, but much more significant is actually the. <clears throat> The ownership of, of slaves in the Caribbean, so this 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 definitely plays a role for the colonial period. Uh, that uh, the slaves are not physically present in Boston, uh, but uh, much of Boston's wealth is uh, built on their labor. Also, you mentioned that like we a lot of your sources were kind of very top down municipal sources, and there seemed to be a kind of like at least prior to World War Two and prior to this like clean up something that kind of struck me was how organic and like poorly planned a lot of the shifts in the city's development were like the we mentioned like the state didn't know uh, the sorry the city didn't know that it owned one of the islands during world war ii and a lot of the developments kind of seemed very pragmatic and reactive and almost chaotic do you think that's kind of a fair assessment absolutely yes that's one of the things that uh, that i'm trying to say that's you, we can't conceive of this history as a clear development from A to B because there's, at any given point, there's a lot of things that are happening simultaneously, influencing each other in, in really unexpected ways. And also there's... Uh, <laughs> uh, you, yeah, you can't really <laughs> make out any... Uh, clearly separate periods in, 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 in the island's uh, development, for instance, because if I say that uh, in the 19th century uh, it's all about isolation and it's all about uh, pushing the things that you don't want in the city proper onto the islands, uh, then it's not the whole story. Uh, because at the same time, some of the islands are starting, starting to be seen as... Uh, uh, as a kind of resort, as pleasant places where you go for a Sunday trip. So, so these things really, really quite often happen at the same time. Um, so yes, definitely like this uh, <laughs> human environmental element influencing each other is uh, like the materiality of the place influencing human perceptions and vice versa. Uh, this is this is actually what I'm trying to say. So if that came across, then good. 
<laughs> it, it very much did. So <laughs> thank you. It was actually that part was very very interesting. Um, and we've already kind of started to touch on the later aspects of the book where you examine like post-war urban renewal programs. And um, actually, I almost kind of got a sense of Soviet utopianism with some of them, with all of its flaws too. But I mean, could you kind of discuss uh, very quickly like the the post-war urban renewal programs and what drove them, the perceived future benefits, and maybe like if how flawed they were as well? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm intrigued by the uh, by the comparison with the with the with, with the Soviet projects because uh, was that intentional? <laughs> uh, mm, I don't know. Um, I definitely didn't have that in mind uh, when, when, when writing the book, but uh, I think there's definitely something to be won here by doing this comparison because uh, uh, in recent years there are quite a, lot, quite a few studies in, in environmental history uh, that show that modernity in, in socialist and capitalist world uh, was in fact quite alike. That, uh, you can you can quite easily compare, uh, for instance, uh, building dams in uh, socialist Czechoslovakia and in the US, because underlying is is a very similar sense of uh, modernizing and of. Uh, um, Using nature to to to, to human needs, uh, but back to urban renewal. Uh, I, I know just yeah. just yeah, just a few points that come in, that come to mind, like very general. Uh, so urban renewal grows out of of a perceived crisis of the inner city in the US, and it's not of course not happening just in Boston. It ha- it's happening. In most uh, most American cities, and the main reasons are usually hmm, seen as suburbanization and the decline of inner cities and decline of revenue that uh, the city receives from the shrinking inner cities, sort of reinforcing each other, um, and. And scholarship, like urban renewal, is usually seen in a mostly negative light because it's 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 usually vilified for and, and rightly so for for demolishing neighborhoods and dislocating residents. But uh, there's also a few recent studies that uh, complicate this picture a bit. For instance, there's on Boston, there's. Uh, there's a new study by uh, Elizabeth Cohen about uh, Ed Logue, who is the uh, Boston master planner. And I think the book's called Saving America's Cities. And what it, what it does is sort of a reassessment of urban renewal or certain part, parts of urban renewal. Uh, that something also is to be said for government planned and funded programs instead of private development. Uh-huh. Could you repeat so, the name so of I the would... researcher again? I'm sorry? sorry? Could you repeat the name of the researcher again? Uh, Elizabeth Cohen. Elizabeth Cohen, okay. Thank you. 
yeah, it's 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 an award-winning book, so it should be easy to find. Yeah. I um, think it actually got the Bancroft Prize, but wow, I feel very embarrassed for not having known uh, it before. Then. I, I only know about this because it's about Boston, <laughs> and and I I write about it look as well, so so that's that's how I came across it. And I found this idea really intriguing that uh, urban renewal wasn't just this almost dirty word, but uh, uh, that it's actually the one time in US history uh, when uh, when the public programs actually actually shape uh, shape America's cities substantially. Which, which doesn't sound so foreign to European ears, but it does to American ears. That's, that's an excellent point. <laughs> I mean, um, exactly, as a European, I think, what's the big deal? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> of course, city planning is, 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 is public business. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently not here. <laughs> um, the, yeah, I, that's interesting, because I wasn't sure that, how you felt about, um, I guess, like the urban development that was described. Like um, I, you cited uh, this young architect Jan Wampler. Um, this is not about Boston. This is about the nineteen sixty four New New York Fair, but it kind of ties into a kind of greater um, exploration of, I guess, the the uh, expos that were happening around that time. And he described it as a great one big a big a great big one billion dollar party at the expense of millions of people whose basic needs are ignored. What a mess! So I was wondering, like, how, like, I was kind of wondering about your kind of take on the urban development that was happening and whether you did see it in, like, a more negative light or not. Uh, you mean uh, the Boston Expo that didn't happen? Uh, the Boston or... Expo that didn't happen and, like, the sub- subsequent urban renewal programs too. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Boston urban renewal is... Uh... Yeah, I mean, the parts of, of, of Boston's urban renewal that uh, that are that I've written about in the book are uh, it's that's that's really a story that's um, it's hard to defend uh, because <clears throat> what what basically happens there is uh, with uh, and and so the the the, the, the probably best or well, best known is, 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 is not the right word here. Probably the most notorious example is, is the West End, uh, which was uh, uh, just just raised, raised to the ground and, and mm, the inhabitants were displaced uh, in a manner that uh, was, was really a human tragedy. And... Uh, just didn't pay any attention to what the community wanted. So it was it was really it's it's probably really an example of everything that, that was wrong with urban renewal. Mm. The expo the, the expo on the other hand it's it's a slightly different story because uh, <laughs> uh, yeah I I, I, I I do like the quote about this <laughs> Great big billion dollar party! What a mess! <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
I mean, it Chen, was fantastic. I really Chen, liked it. Chen, too. <laughs> uh, so Chen, Chen Lampler, the, the architect that was, who was, was responsible for, for the expo design, um, was, I think, 28 at the time. So he was understandably radical. <laughs> but he was also, and an, I think that's, that's very interesting. And in he was very socially conscious. He's also traveled outside the US to South America. And what he's trying to do here is uh, to create an exhibition that uh, contributes to the actual problems that, uh, that the contemporary world has. <laughs> and yeah. that it's, it's not just uh, showing off the industry and the culture, but that is actually solving urban problems. It's still underpinned by ideas of social good. Oh, yes. And... This is very much in line with uh, with a contemporary uh, urban theory, and because this is this is time when um, uh, life in the city uh, is 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 one of the major problems that uh, both the public and academics uh, perceive as, as as really pressing, and rather like. Uh, yeah, I was actually I, 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 I don't know if we could compare it to uh, to the climate crisis, but uh, it gets about about the same amount uh, of attention at the time. Like, yeah, I mean, around that that time, you must have come across quite a few ideas that were kind of being floated and discussed. And I was wondering if there were any projected ideas that you really liked that were never executed. <laughs> I would, I have to admit, I would actually be curious to see how how the expo would have turned out if it had been built, because it was, it was this really curious mixture of uh, interesting ideas, very good intentions, um, uh, but combined with this, like... 60s sense of, of uh, mm. that technology can solve anything <laughs> and these slightly megalomaniac projects. <laughs> so I'd be really interested to see uh, how, how, yeah, what it, what it would look like today and how we would think about it if it, if it would just seem a like a, a relic from from a completely different past that no longer fits uh, our time, or if if it would be a project that uh, sort of shows the way, because I mean there's there's housing projects from the sixties. Oh, and now I actually have a point of reference uh, from, uh, from Central Europe is. For instance, in, in former Czechoslovakia, there are there are there are housing projects from the sixties that are still seen as as model cities. So I, I I'd be really curious to know, curious to see uh, on on which side would the expo be. <laughs> yeah, I would too. Like the images that like you created with the idea of like the kind of. I, I don't really know what to call them, like the extensions across the water in the harbour. Yeah, yeah, that's that was a very, very cool suggestion. 
uh, it was it was also interesting to see that uh, they did incorporate uh, some uh, some environmental concerns, which uh, yeah. at the time wasn't a matter of course. No. Of sounds, course, the other, question is, the, the other question is if it if it had worked, if it actually hadn't made the harbor pollution, for instance, worse than it already was. But uh, at least they were talking about it. Yeah. It, it, going back, I mean, we kind of drifted slightly, so apologies for that, from the ecology of the islands. Um, you noted at one point in the book that the the kind of, in the modern era, the ecology of the islands was barely considered, like such as in the 1960s, and rather their resources. And then you kind of suggest that it was around the 1970s and 1980s that people started to kind of think about the natural environment and island ecology. So can you kind of pinpoint when and why people started considering the possibilities that, you know, these things were very important to the city? Well, if we're talking about, if we're thinking about it as uh, ecology or environment, then it's really the 1970s. Is this is this is the yeah this is the environmental decade is, um, this is the time when major U.S. legislation for environmental protection is being enacted. This is the time uh, when also in Boston Harbor, some of the first uh, non-profit organizations uh, that uh, that focus on 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 the environment and on ecology are being founded. Uh, before that, uh, I wouldn't want to say that it's of no concern at all, but it would be just anachronistic to, to call it environmental concern, because this is not the way uh, people would think about it. Uh, in fact, when the, when the National Park was established in the 1990s, uh, mm, one thing that the planners stressed over and over was that... Uh, this idea of protecting the islands goes back to the late 19th century and to mm, people like uh, Frederick Olmsted, the, the landscape architect, or mm, who was involved in, 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 in the Boston Park system. Uh, in, in case of, uh, of the Harbour Islands, uh, the more important person is, is, uh, is Boston-based landscape architect Charles Elliott. And both he and, and, and Olmsted call for a um, Boston-wide park system of which the harbour and the islands are supposed to be part of. And, uh, but uh, they're not concerned with uh, protecting the island's ecology because this, this is, this is uh, not the debate that you have at the time. Uh, what they appreciate is the natural beauty of the islands. So it's it's about it's on the one <clears throat> it's firstly about the natural beauty of the landscape, and secondly, and perhaps more important, it's uh, about a an interest in, in a healthful urban landscape, which is part of the of the of the sanitary city thinking, really. That, yeah. Uh, I guess you start to mention as well that, like, um, that 
I suppose they became kind of incorporated, the islands became incorporated into the leisure activities of wealthy Bostonians in this era. And they were yeah, using but, the islands I mean, for vacations. This, uh, so, so this park system, uh, that's exactly the point that uh, wealthy Bostonians uh, start going to the islands in, already in, like, in the second half of the 19th century. Uh, but uh, this park system also concerns primarily uh, the people who are not uh, as well to do. Uh, so this is this is this is this is primarily a project that from from which the, as they call it at the time, the the urban masses are supposed to profit. And it's also it's it's not only a measure of. Uh, <clears throat> social benefit, but it's also a measure of social control. Because you don't want the population to engage in, in uh, dubious activities in their free time. So you need to provide parks where the population can, that's the idea, that they can improve their lives and improve themselves by, by observing their social betters. In, 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 in this situation. <laughs> quite unquote social betters. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I am sorry for, for 19th century vocabulary. <laughs> <laughs> it is in your fault. Um, yeah, like, if we're coming back to the kind of 1980s and the cleanup again, the... Mm-hmm. <laughs> So that was when, like you say, the harbour came to be known as America's dirtiest harbour. And of course, you know, headlines can be sensational. So I wondered what, like, to what extent you feel it earned that title and would it still be deserved today? Uh, I... Hmm, that's a good question. Yeah, if you say that, it usually means you don't have a good answer. <laughs> Not all questions uh, have to have answers. They can just be things to think about, I guess. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if Boston Harbour was America's dirtiest harbour. Uh, it was definitely a politically effective label. Uh, in more than one sense, is. It was probably one of the things that won George Bush Senior the election in eighteen in eighty eight. Uh, because I mean, the other candidate was was uh, Massachusetts Governor Michael Dukakis, and uh, f- famously would. What Bush did was uh, to blame the state of, of Boston's harbor uh, on Dukakis and, and describe Boston Harbor as, as, as the harbor of shame. <laughs> um, uh, also, this this was repeated in the press over and over again that Boston Harbor is really a disgrace and it's America's dirtiest harbor. Um, if the campaign hadn't been uh, led in such drastic words, uh, it may have taken longer to, 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 to actually deal with the problem. So it may... I don't know if Boston Harbor was America's dirtiest harbor, but it definitely had a 
grave pollution problem and this and this rhetoric may have contributed to the, to, to eventually solving the problem um, I don't know the I don't know kind of the details of how this would have worked but something I just kind of suddenly thought was is it a kind of a title that maybe Boston municipal um, I don't know people administrate it people in administrative roles in the city could have pushed for themselves, say, to maybe, I don't know, secure more funding for, like, development projects. Is that possible, or is that just kind of uh, being overly speculative? Mm, I, I don't know, and I wouldn't want to speculate. I, That's okay. And I, 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 I would actually be surprised if they did, because the city was, was on the defensive most of the time, because they were facing several lawsuits because because of uh, because of the of the state of the harbor yeah yeah from the EPA among others so uh, I, I wanted to end on like a couple of more kind of speculative notes <laughs> so apologies in advance um the first one was like would Boston be where it is as it is today without the harbor islands and we have this kind of allusion to the spe- to spectacle islands, like Redemption Arc. But what future now do you hope for the islands? Is the other one? Mm-hmm. Oh. Big questions. Big questions and Would very subjective. Would Boston be today without the islands? Uh, as a Boston Harbour Islands historian, my answer would be an emphatic no. Of course, of course, uh, the islands are immensely important. Uh, And just to give give a concrete example, and I'm going back to Spectacle Island now. uh, Like so, the Boston Harbor cleanup was one of the large large uh, public projects in Boston's history, and the other one uh, was uh, the so called Big Dig which everyone in Boston knows and quite a few outside Boston as well. So it was, it was this, this huge project of, uh, so Boston had this, this highway uh, since the fifties, basically cutting down downtown in half. And in the course of this project, uh, the highway was depressed. So it was put into a tunnel and there was also a third tunnel dug un- under the under Boston Harbor. So, um, of course, this project generated a vast amount of, uh, of dirt, of, of excavate. Um, uh, quite a large portion of this ended up on Spectacle Island. So... In this way, spectacle actually allows Boston, Boston downtown, uh, to <clears throat> sorry, to reconnect uh, with its shoreline and to be a, for American standards, pedestrian-friendly city, and because. Uh, if it hadn't been for, for Spectacle Island, Boston would, in this respect, uh, have looked much different. Yeah, 
No, that's interesting. And you, you have this wonderful kind of map, by the way, in the book of like that shows how the shape of Spectacle Island changed over the years <laughs> because of right. projects like this. It's so cool. Yeah, first, first of all, they, they were actually thinking about putting all the excavat on Spectacle Island, uh, which, of course, conveniently ignored several environmental laws. And, yeah. <laughs> uh, but still, I mean, spectacle grew uh, to to the shape it has now because no longer spectacle shaped. Yeah, <laughs> 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 or could yeah. The island formerly known as Spectacle Island, perhaps. <laughs> mm. And the future of the islands—that's that's another yeah. interesting question. Because... What would you hope hope for? Hmm. <laughs> like as as. As a person, I actually like the way the islands are used used right now, and because I don't know if you've been, but it's it's really a lovely urban park, which allows people from Boston to hmm, so yeah, it's 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 really a recreational opportunity that doesn't doesn't require you to travel far. It just takes a boat ticket. It's very inclusive, so like anyone can go. Because it doesn't cost much to get there. And uh, of course, one of the major factors facing Boston, not only Boston, and, and of course also the islands, is, 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 is climate change. Because even even now, uh, like Boston's noticing that uh, that uh, the sea level rises, and this actually I, I, I couldn't pack this into the book anymore. But uh, there was another interesting project contemplated in, in connection with the islands that fits perfectly into this uh, this image of the islands solving Boston's problems and, and sheltering Boston because one of the plans uh, about how to deal with the rising seas um, was to build a barrier between the islands like sort of inspired by what you would have in the Netherlands so like a kind of seawall yes huh. um, yeah, it, it wasn't recommended in the end, but it just shows you that this kind of thinking that uh, the islands can solve Boston's problems is, is still alive and well. Um, yeah, so thank you very much for your time, Pavla. I'm, I was really, really honoured to have you as my first ever guest as a podcast host. Yeah, <laughs> this was a fascinating book to read. Um, so for listeners... This book, um, An Environmental History of the Boston Harbour Islands, Urban Archipelago. It was published by University of Massachusetts Press in 2021, and so it is available to buy now. Um, yeah, and thank you again so, so much, and I hope we get to meet in person one day. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much. This, this was really fun.